Hi folks, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is for us to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today you join us as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, Season 3, and we're picking up at the beginning of Matthew chapter 11, and we'll be spending a couple of days looking at the opening couple of paragraphs, the first 17 or so verses of this chapter. Now, if you are here for the very first time, then please consider hitting that subscribe button on wherever it is you get your podcasts from, and that way you'll never miss another opportunity to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. Every day, Monday to Friday, there's a new podcast uploaded. And then if you hang around at the end, I'll point the place where you can access the entire archive. So with that all said, thank you so much again for joining me. Thank you for being part of this community of those people who've decided to bring the Bible into the orbit of their daily lives. I'll see you at the back end. Okay, folks, today we're beginning a new section, looking at a new passage, probably taking a couple of days to study the first half of Matthew chapter 11, and we're picking it up at verse 2. But before I read that, let me just ask you a very quick question, and that is, I wonder if you've ever doubted your faith. Now, as, as believers, we're thrown all kinds of attacks and challenges to us as Christians, to the very basis of Christianity itself. Unbelievers will question us, they'll question it, and they'll even attack us. But that's sort of par for the course as a Christian believer, and that's not exactly what I'm getting at here. What I'm asking is that as a believer, as you've gone along, have you ever personally had doubts? Doubts about Jesus, who he is, doubts about your Christian faith? Maybe as a believer, you still have moments where you question if Jesus really is the Son of God or that he is the Messiah of the Old Testament or that this is as we believe it is. Well, maybe you think those kind of doubts only happen to young, immature Christians or to people who've maybe not been brought up in a Christian background or with a Christian family. Some people believe that those sort of doubts, the very doubts about the truthfulness of Christianity, that they only happen to somebody who isn't a seasoned, mature servant of Jesus Christ. So the question I'm asking today, can an older, mature, someone who's been a Christian for a long time, all of a sudden, or over a period of time, begin to have doubts about the truthfulness of Christianity, and how, if that is so, how they should address that? Well, the startling answer to that question, I believe, is yes. And what I want to try and do today is that if that is something that happens to you, is to try to answer those questions, or at least to find a way as how to address those questions and doubts. Now, as a matter of fact, as we arrive at this chapter 11, we're going to see that there is this situation in the life of Christ where there's an incident where Matthew talks about and Jesus tells us about a situation where one of his greatest prophets, one of the greatest heroes of the faith who ever lived, had a moment where they doubted and questioned whether Jesus was the Messiah. So let's see how Jesus handles this and then hopefully we can learn from that how we should handle it if these things come into our lives or even if someone else initiates this thinking in our lives by questioning either us or our Christian faith. 
So to try and get some answer to these important questions, I invite your attention to the opening of Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. And it says this, And what John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, this is John the Baptist, by the way, he sent two of his disciples, that's John the Baptist's disciples, to Jesus and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to those disciples, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now before we look at this passage in detail, I would just like us to back off for a second and talk about the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. We started in chapter 1 verse 1 and we've been systematically working our way together through this book for 78 days now and I do hope that you've been along for the entire journey and if you've just come to us recently I would maybe ask you to consider going back, if not right to the beginning, a couple of years ago, maybe go back at least to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel and pay catch-up for a while, and that way you can join us on this entire journey. But just for all of us, for a moment, I'd like to remind us what I said about the structure of this book when I did my introduction about three months ago. You see, this is a critical point in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's an appropriate point to take a time out and consider the structure of this Gospel account. That Matthew records for it. The opening part of the book of Matthew by many Bible experts is described as the preparation of the coming king. Now you've heard me say several times that the subject of this book is to show obviously the readers of Matthew's day who were mainly Jews who would then by being impacted with the story would become messianic Jewish believers so one of Matthew's primary purposes was to show that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah the King of the Jews and the first portion of this book in fact the first seven chapters is about the preparation and proving who that person is the preparation of the king, some call it, and that includes giving all the basic principles about who Jesus is and then summarizing all his teaching in the Sermon of the Mount. Then in the next several chapters, we, having been introduced to Jesus as the Messiah and King, we are shown the power that this king, that this Messiah has. You might remember not that long ago when we worked our way through chapters 8 and 9, we looked at just one miracle after another. Jesus, in fact, performed 9 or 10 miracles in a row in this account. And then in chapter 10, we saw him send out his apostles, his disciples, telling them to evangelize, initially to the house of Israel and then to go wider, but to do that with power and to do that using similar signs and miracles as Jesus himself had done. In fact, empowering them by the Holy Spirit to do that. So up to this point, many believe you can divide the Gospel of Matthew thus far into two parts. So part one was the preparation for his ministry, including establishing who he is and also the principles upon which he would work. And then part two, the power of the Messiah, of the Messiah King, is then demonstrated and then modelled by these recently commissioned new disciples. But today we arrive at Matthew chapter 11 verse 2, where the third section of this gospel account starts. 
So today we're going to begin a portion of the Gospel of Matthew which deals with the beginning of the rising opposition to him. This section could actually and is actually called by some the opposition to the king. And this perspective will become more and more evident even although it first appears in this paragraph, but it is going to become increasingly evident as we move through these verses, ending in chapters 13, verse 53. It's important that we know that up to this point, this has all happened, and Jesus has in fact preached probably his most significant message of his entire ministry, that which we call the Sermon on the Mount, and that he has performed miracles. That's an important backdrop to what we're going to see over the next few days as we look at these verses of this conversation between the disciples of John the Baptist who've come, spent time with Jesus, witnessed what's happening and go back with a report. And of course the fact that John the Baptist is in prison is obviously, not only was he a forerunner of the arrival of Jesus as Messiah, but also what's happening to him is a foreshadow of the persecution that is about to come both to Jesus and, by nature, the church, the people who follow Jesus. So with that in mind, let's look at the an opening paragraph I just read to you, and let's pick it up again and just re-examine it, looking at initially verse 2 and 3, where it says, And when John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison about the works of Jesus, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now we need to pause for a second here, because we hear John the Baptist asking a question. That's the first part of the paragraph. But right at the start, it tells us he's in prison. It told us that that had happened back in chapter 4, and now it's mentioned again. Now Matthew doesn't explain how John has ended up in prison. We'll not find that out in detail until we get to chapter 14. And I'm not planning to go into detail here today, because we're going to examine it very closely in a few weeks' time. But I'll just tell you the very bare basis of the story of how he ends up in prison. You see, a guy called Herod Antipas was the ruler in Galilee at that time. And whilst he returned and visited Rome, he seduced his brother's wife. And then after he came back home to Galilee and divorced his current wife and married the lady who was in fact his sister-in-law had been his brother's wife. Now this, by Jewish standards, was an adulterous marriage and John the Baptist will speak out against it. And when he did, Herod had John put in prison. So we've come to the end of the ministry of John the Baptist and instead of being recognised and applauded as a forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist is languishing in jail, possibly waiting execution. But this verse tells us that even there he'd heard about the works of Christ. Now notice it doesn't say he heard about the works of Jesus. It says he heard about the works of Christ, which is the Greek form of the word Messiah. So he's heard about the words and the works of the Messiah. And in hearing that, he sends out two of his disciples and he tells them the question that they've asked is to simply to go to Jesus and say, are you the Messiah? Confirm it. Are you the Messiah or should we be looking and waiting for someone else? And that's the question John the Baptist has asked. And I would like us just for a moment to think about why he asked that question. Well, John was in prison and he probably had these doubts and he asked this question because he was disappointed and discouraged. 
So he was really just asking because he was in a place where he was really struggling mentally, spiritually and every way. Obviously great disappointed that he'd ended up in this place. Now I can't doubt that John may well have been disappointed and I don't for one second say he wouldn't have been discouraged. And I think we can reach no other natural explanation by looking at the way this, the words of this passage itself is that John the Baptist is indeed questioning or asking the question whether Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So what would make him do that? Well, I think for one thing it may be he had unrealistic expectations at that point as almost everyone did who initially accept Jesus as the Messiah. You see, he had come preaching the judgment to fall upon people and would have expected that judgment to fall upon the Romans as well. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't judge. He had come, in a sense, probably initially expecting with the arrival of the Messiah, the kingdom of God to be ushered in and for the the Jewish Messiah to, in a sense, kick out the Romans and replace him as the king of king and the ruler of Israel. As a matter of fact, the very first words that came out of the mouth of John the Baptist we see are repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yet Jesus was here and he'd been here a while and the kingdom hadn't been established yet. And here we have John sitting in prison expecting the Messiah to bring in the messianic era and Jesus hasn't done that yet. So he's saying at least, well, this is troubling and I have some questions that are bothering me. So John the the Baptist had some unrealized, not unrealistic, unrealized expectation of what he thought the Messiah ought to be doing. And that had led him to doubt. I also think that the second possible explanation, or at least an add-on to his doubts, would be the fact that he was sitting in prison and about potentially to lose his head. And as a matter of fact, later in the Gospels, we will see that's exactly what will happen to him. So here he is, forerunner of Jesus, the one who is the Messiah. And instead of the kingdom reigning and the Romans expulged from the country, he's sitting languishing in prison, waiting execution. And he's thinking, well, at least he's thinking this isn't what I had anticipated or expected to happen. So it is his circumstances that caused him to doubt that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. I can imagine him sitting there questioning and saying, why is Jesus letting the Herods and the likes of Herods, the people like that of this world, get away with murder and terror and sin, while at the same time letting me an innocent man and other people like me sit here and suffer. So that's the background and just let me pause again and remind you and ask the same question if you're listening to this here today. As a mature Christian believer, have you ever had moments when you doubted the truthfulness of Christianity? Well, I would say that if you haven't had those moments, you haven't really been thinking or you've been choosing to ignore and not ask yourself some of the hard questions of life. I personally think it's very natural and I think that when it comes, when those questions come, they come to us in a similar way as they came to John, which they rise out of the circumstances we find ourselves in. John, in this occasion, had doubts because he had unrealistic expectations of the time frame by which the messianic kingdom would come in. 
And in the same way, sometimes we expect the Lord to do something and he doesn't do it. And I suspect today that that is the number one cause still of doubt among believers today. You know, the number one reason Christians lose their faith when they go to university is those that have grown up in a Christian home. When they get out in the world and they get to college or university and they get challenged by people or some professor starts to challenge what they believe or challenge the scriptures or plant seeds of doubt in their mind because of the subject that they're studying, they then, for the first time, begin to be challenged as to whether or not their Christianity is true. Other people, particularly those who have been brought up within a Christian community, they will sometimes meet a friend at work or they'll read a book or they'll watch something on TV that casts doubt on the whole thing. And the questions posed by those situations or those people plants little seeds of doubts in people's minds. But for others, perhaps the main one, it's the circumstances of their life that come along and has caused people to doubt. Maybe because they prayed to God for an answer and God hasn't appeared to answer their prayers. From their perspective, God has remained silent through their suffering. In fact, I personally think the most common thing that causes a crisis of faith is when people, when they find they or their loved ones in a very difficult situation, and they pray hard and they pray sincerely, but they appear to have no answer. They then back off and begin to wonder if God's really there. But maybe... If we, maybe if those people and maybe if we make a point of when those difficult questions are raised in our mind, when that happens, this side of the crisis, that we address them and address them in the way that Jesus is going to address them here. And that way we might be better prepared to deal with them when they come along. So my plan today and tomorrow is to ask what is the proper way to respond to doubts that prop on your head. What I'm telling you friends is don't ignore them but press into them and seek answers. So if at any time you have ever doubted the truthfulness of Christianity I want to try and give you some keys as what to do with those doubts and how to answer those doubts even if they're about the truthfulness and the reality of the whole thing. And we're going to be able to do that by looking at how Jesus handles this situation in the life of one of his most important and mature followers. And look at what the next verses tell us. Verses 4 to 6. Jesus answers and said to them, Go tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So how in the world does that address John the Baptist's doubts? Well, I believe if we press in here, what we will discover is very significant. For the first thing he says is, go back and tell John what you've heard. Now, this is a reference saying that they're there to tell him all about what Jesus has been teaching up to this point. And no doubt that will include that massive section that he taught as he worked through the Sermon on the Mount. But then he says, not only tell them what you've heard, but also tell them what you've seen. And he said, you know, we're talking about the blind seeing, the lame walking, the dead being raised and so forth. Is it just the evidence of the miracles? Is that all and is that what is meant to prove that he's Messiah? Well, of course, on one level, yes. But it's much more than that. 
You see, what they knew and what Jesus was well aware of was not just the fact that he was working those miracles, but by the working of those miracles, he was fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. You see, actually, Matthew chapter 11, verse 5, which we've just read, is a direct quotation from the book of Isaiah. And as a matter of fact, there are several passages linked together in these verses that Steve is, is offering as proof of his Messiahship, and they are all pulled out of Isaiah. I've just read one for you from Isaiah chapter 28. Furthermore, in Isaiah 29, verse 18, it also says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see, and out of the obscurity and darkness the humble will increase their joy in the Lord. And that's another reference to the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah is full of them. The poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. That's another. So Isaiah is predicting that when the Messiah comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, those things that we talked about. But there are many other scriptures that talk about it. And Jesus here is saying, look, I'm the fulfillment of these Old Testament scriptures. Another one, Isaiah 35.4, says, To those who are faint-hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your Lord will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you, and then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the deaf unstopped, and the lame will leap as a deer. So in this passage, in Matthew, what we see here is Jesus offering, as proof that he is the Messiah, what he, Jesus is saying to John the Baptist's disciples to go back and tell him that what we have heard and seen is the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the Messiah of the Old Testament. Concluding that statement by saying, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, that's an unusual translation. But let me help you. Jesus is saying, go tell John, but also at the end of telling him all what has happened and what this all means. It says, don't stumble over this because it is knowing this. And by through knowing this, you will be blessed. To say, do not be offended, can also be translated and is translated in some translation is don't stumble over these things. So he's saying, look at the scriptures and see that what I am doing is the fulfillment of them, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And if you don't stumble over that, you'll be blessed. So to sum up where we are so far in this opening part, and what I've said thus far is that this passage begins with John asking a question, and the question is, he sends his disciples back, and the question is, are you the Messiah, or are we still to continue waiting and looking for someone else? And Jesus responds by saying, look at what I've taught, listen to what I've taught, consider what I'm doing and see that it is tested against the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That's what I'm offering you as proof that I am the Messiah and that's what I'm offering you as a solution to your doubt. And the same principle applies today, friends. Now, before I close today, I would just like us to pause for a second and ask the question that we're going to consider next time is, who is expressing doubt here? What type of person is expressing doubt here? Is it some weak, fickle person? Is it someone that isn't very strong? Well, next time we'll consider what it is that Matthew next says about this person, John the Baptist, this person that is proclaimed and witnessed, identified as having some doubt. Because that gives us an insight 
into the type of person who has doubts. Is it just the weak-willed or is it the mature and strong in faith? What type of person might have these doubts to begin with and how they might be addressed? Okay, friends, that's it for today. I hope that was helpful for you. We'll get to the meat of it and the real answers tomorrow. Well, I hope we can be encouraged that our doubts are not to be something feared and run away from, but to be used as a catalyst for us to seek answers for ourselves and thereby we can hopefully help some other people as well. So with that all said, we'll bring it to an end there. Let me remind you that there's lots of ways in which you can connect to this ministry. Please consider subscribing and making the decision to follow along with all the others and be part of this community as we work our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the whole Bible. And having done that, you should be able to find your way either through wherever it is you're getting podcasts from or from the podcast host platform, which is the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com. You'll find links there to lots of other places where you can connect to this ministry and this teaching. Lots of live links for places where you can get not only access to this teaching, but other more structured discipleship type courses. And I'm just so thankful for each and every one of you who've made the decision to follow along with me as we study together. And with that all said, I'll just say bye-bye for now. And I do trust I'll find you right back here tomorrow as we launch out again on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.